You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Tesla. Welcome to the uh, Bloomberg Markets Podcast. Today, I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. He's a senior analyst at Wedbush Security, sporting his Rose Bowl hat. Penn State big win. We'll get to that. I thought they played very well. Good, good win there. Mandeep Singh. Also joining us in studio here. Um, Dan, I, I know you've been dealing with this issue for all year. Um, what do you say to clients? Uh, because I know as an equity research analyst, your job over the years has been to kind of, in part, educate your clients on the EV market, on the opportunities, on the investment opportunities. And the Tesla story had worked for shareholders and your clients so well. And then a lot of things have turned here in, tw in the last 12 mm -hmm. months. Yeah, I mean, it's been a perfect storm. I mean, the first part was the must Twitter circus show driven. Yep. But this last part's been demand worries. And, and look, China's the hearts and lungs of the Tesla story. Competition clearly increasing within the country domestically. You're seeing price cuts and some cracks in the armor. And I think right now the big worry is you saw the price cut today. What does that mean for demand? And especially what does that mean for margins? Look, my view is that they've actually have now the scale to expand margins. So they have flexibility. They could cut prices even another four to five percent and margins still, you know, I believe could stay relatively range bound. But it, it's all about the fear of the unknown. You obviously have a key earnings, the key guidance coming around the corner January 25th. And Musk is the one that started the five alarm fire. He is the only one that could extinguish it. Mandeep, uh, you know, the, what caught me off guard was the huge delta between what apparently Chinese consumers pay for a Tesla and what I would pay if I bought one here. Are, are these apples to apples? Because that would make me very, very, very angry if I were a U.S. consumer knowing that my Chinese counterparts are paying 40% less for the same product. Well, so one is uh, cost of manufacturing will differ. And uh, because we are talking about geopolitical landscape where, you know, people want to move their supply chains here, you will have a cost differential more and more. So this trend is not going away. If you are moving things onshore, you will have higher costs and then uh, there fair. will be a cost that's, differential. That's yeah. That is. So, Mandy, so but the 40 percent cheaper price tag that's for a made in china tesla yes. versus a made in the it's US all tesla. about localized manufacturing got it yeah. so i mean dan was talking about you know some of the challenges there um just to tesla fundamentally but he also mentioned that one of the big challenges for this stock has just been elon and twitter mm -hmm. what are you hearing from i don't know the digital advertising community as it relates to 
you know, the, really the future of Twitter. Has he paid $44 billion for something that may be worth, I don't know, 20? What, a lot less? I mean, look at Fidelity. They marked down Twitter's stake by almost 50%. So according to them, Twitter should be valued at $22 billion, then $44 billion uh, Elon okay. paid for. So clearly, when, you, when you're private investors, and there are like four or five of them, they're marking down the investment, it tells you something. And look, the ad market isn't going to get better anytime soon. And Twitter's positioning, I mean, it, it was all brand advertising. And that's the one that got hit the most in this downturn. So clearly, I don't see a way back you know, anytime soon. This year is going to be awful for most of the digital ad companies, more so for the ones exposed to brand advertising, which is Twitter. So, D Dan, if, if uh, brands want to get away from the Elon Musk brand, because that's what it is, right? Um, do consumers want to get away from the Elon Musk brand? Because I can't imagine, uh, you know, left-leaning, progressive, middle-class um, couple wanting to buy a Tesla these days. Well, look, I think brand deterioration has been an issue. We've talked about it. It's a black eye for Musk. It's a black eye for Tesla. I do think that this can be course corrected. Look, if you look at the broader EV market, it's still Tesla's world, everyone else paying rent relative to market share. Now, competition's increasing. You look in the 313 area code, GM, Ford, and others, and I believe GM could be very successful on EVs. It's a fork in the road. It's a moment of truth for Musk, and it all starts Jan 25th. You gotta set realistic expectations to hit, not lofty ones. Guy named his CEO to Twitter to start to get some sort of hands off here. And then the, I believe the stock starts to correct itself. But right so, now, it's, a, it's obviously a bond. January bond. 25th, the earnings date for Tesla. Why, by the way, t stepping back and looking at this over the last 10, 12, 13 years, why has it taken incumbent automakers so long to get into this um, business that was clearly going to grow like gangbusters? I mean, now you see GM and Ford getting into it, Volkswagen obviously going full tilt, but uh, over a decade later, and they're still, you know, we had a great story about Toyota. They pioneered the space in a sense with the, with the what's that little thing called? Prius. Prius. <laughs> and, and they still uh, gave up on this market. You know, Nissan had the Leaf forever ago, and they still haven't uh, invested in what they need to in this market. How come? Is it, is it a conspiracy with the oil producers, it, or what's the deal? It's a historic as in like they'll study this from decades and decades. It's a historic miss for the traditional automakers. And ultimately Musk, you know, from an innovation perspective was really the one that drove Tesla to basically think out of the box and create something that other automakers almost laughed at at the time. Now obviously they're following where Tesla is. And then it comes down to like US 2.5% autos or EVs. So we're still in the early days, but ultimately Musk has done what no competitor can do he's created this sort of I stuff. feel like so, there's so, got to be some conspiracy no, I feel no. like there has Here's to the be answer. CEOs were in bed with big oil because Here's the answer. at the IPO at the Tesla IPO we all said oh no when the competition comes in they're screwed and it's been over a decade okay we'll give them over a decade head start no one says that in no. real business Here's right the answer per Kevin Tyne in the auto analyst for Bloomberg <laughs> intelligence he says that GM and Ford they're not in the car business they're in the profitable car business. When they can make a profit on a car, i.e. the demand is at a certain level and the costs are at a certain level, that's when they're gonna get into the market. Elon Musk was the visionary for the technology, but he can't make a lot of cars. And so now you got Ford and GMs and, and Volkswagen, your car company, they're like, okay, <laughs> now I can make it profitable and I can, and we're gonna be all in. 
You know, so the battery that, that technology kinda, got to that point where And that goes to my yeah. question to Dan, like from a Tesla perspective, you got Volkswagen coming, you got GM. Where is Tesla's, I guess, niche in the market? Where's their position in the market? Yes, they were the first, but now if I've got a Porsche, if I've got a Mercedes, if I've got a Ford, I don't know. Well, that's look, that's right now the quagmire because you start to go back to, you gotta get a sub 30K vehicle in terms of out there to compete, right, from a masses perspective. They obviously are viewed as the brand leader, the yep. premium one, but now competition come from all angles, and that's why 2023, it is a huge inflection point year for them, how they navigate it. And you're, it's like Matt has talked about, as you see it reflected in the stock, it, this is really for the first time after a Cinderella ride, they got their back against the wall. Can, can I add just one more thing? Yeah, so please. Tesla was valued as a tech company yes. last year. Now it's being valued as an auto company. Suddenly, the tech premium is being gone. valued as three or four auto companies, right? Because it still has a bigger it market cap. It still has a bigger, but GM plus Ford plus Toyota, which is, by the way, the biggest automaker in the world. So it still towers over the biggest automaker in the world. And the reason it was valued as a tech company is because they had the autonomous driving, you know, uh, inside. I mean, basically, they were capturing a lot of data. They were making a lot of progress. Suddenly, no one seems to care about it. And obviously, the focus seems to have shifted to Twitter when it comes to Musk. And it's no more, uh, you know, a tech company, even though I would argue and I agree with them that, you know, Tesla is miles ahead of GM and Volkswagen and all the competitors when it comes to the data and the autonomous side of things because they have built this uh, system. It's a full stack. Yep. Similar to Apple, it's an ecosystem. And uh, that's yep. an advantage. That's not going away anytime soon. So, Dan, soon. do you really think we're going to see legit competition this year? I mean, I know there's a Porsche Taycan if I want to spend two hundred grand. I know there's a Ford Lightning if I want to wait two oh, years baby. on a nice. on a waiting list. Um, but, you know, it just seems like either I'm getting a Bolt, right, or I'm on a waiting list, or I'm spending, like, my kid's college tuition. Yep. Yeah, I think the real competition's in China for, for right now. I mean, that's where, with Neo, Xping, BY, that's where the real competition. In the U.S., look, I think you, you obviously have a lot of automakers going after GM, I do believe it's the real deal. I believe that they have a number of vehicles from Cadillac that, you know, to some of the other the models. The Silverado EV I've driven, and it's no, amazing. They've yeah. done, <laughs> what, Ma what Mary and Tina have done is, is really game-changing. But ultimately, it's Tesla's market to lose. And that's why right now, Musk, he needs to be the pilot on the plane. He can't have a Ted Stryker moment. <laughs> that's, for Wait, the kids, that's an airplane reference. Airplane reference. Go Google it. Um, so, Dan, do we have any sense that he's gotten that message, that it's going to happen? I haven't really heard a lot from him recently. I think that's intense. I think for the first time, he's. I think behind the scenes, he's trying to strategize, reading the room. And I think he recognizes, look, it, as Mandeep talks about, Twitter, it's not just a $44 billion mistake. I'd argue it's a $700 billion mistake because yeah. of the market cap ultimately taking off of Tesla Oof. that's really taken. So that's why this is, this is just a pivotal earnings, probably the most important earnings for Musk uh, maybe ever. Mandeep, do you, do you expect serious competition for Tesla in the West? I mean, I saw a story that Mercedes is going to lead the charge with a new, um, you know, like a supercharger network but Tesla has had it for a decade. And I think a lot of consumers, that's one of their main concerns. There's just, you don't want to get stuck. Um, and it's so hard to find a charging station. I mean, anytime you're selling a $60,000 vehicle, 
you have to think what is the potential install. The average base? EV starts at sixty-five thousand dollars in America. And so, what is the potential install base? How many cars can you sell at that price point? And I think that's where the market will get saturated unless you bring down the price. So that's where I, I right. see competition. Good stuff, uh, Tesla. Uh, January twenty. 25th. 25th. Okay, that's the line. That's the date we'll focus on. Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, breaking down the story that is Tesla, that is Elon Musk. Uh, st stock down 70%, 7-0 over the prior 12 months, so a tough ride. And another 3% today. Another 3% today. Tough ride for the shareholders of Tesla. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, you know, it's CES this week, Consumer Electronics Show. But let's be honest, it's really the auto show with some gadgets around it. Uh, lots of announcements coming out of Vegas here in CES, including Mercedes-Benz partnering, partnering with ChargePoint in North America for charging network. And this goes to one of the issues I have as I try to get smart on this whole EV businesses. Do we need a, like as many charging stations as we have gas stations today? I don't know how that plays out, but fortunately we got uh, someone who's really in charge of this stuff, right on the point of it, Pasquale Romano. He's the CEO and president of ChargePoint, and ChargePoint, of course, is a New York Stock Exchange-listed uh, company. CHPT is a ticker you can load into your Bloomberg terminal. Pasquale, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about your deal with uh, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, well, it's a very interesting uh, I think, uh, development for drivers everywhere uh, in the United States and Canada. Um, what we're doing with them is, is effectively curating a network uh, aligned with the 30-minute retail economy. Um, we really believe that drivers need uh, not only charging when they're on a road trip, but they need something to do. They need safety. They need, um, <clears throat> they need you know, the, the usual accoutrements that you would expect when you're on a road trip. And, uh, you know, we're very excited that a premium brand like Mercedes-Benz is um, really dove into this and willing to partner with us to really curate a great experience for the drivers. So I see um, a graphic rendering of a Mercedes-Benz charging hub in a Bloomberg story, which looks, um, you know, elegant, but I can't see the retail, um, you know, extravaganza that I'm, hoping for as a as a dyed in the wool consumer what should i be looking for at a at a charge point um, experience well i think uh well what, what stuff can i get what, what drivers look for is what they want 
Well, it's what they it's it's what drivers really want to do. So we're going to align this with brands that exist. Uh, so so imagine locating the types of chargers that you see on the graphic, uh, aligning those with good brands that people want to use when they uh, are on a road trip. So this is not about Mercedes Benz developing their own food service brands or their own retail brands. It is them sponsoring the placement of stations like that at locations that drivers already enjoy frequenting. Ah, so like at a shop right are we talking wa- about talk- like a wawa here 7-eleven <laughs> that kind of thing yeah well well I, I i think i think there's some place for convenience stores but uh, i think uh you know uh everything from food you know food services to coffee to uh potentially retail it's aligned with something that you can do over about 30 minutes 20 to 30 minutes it's 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 again anything that that 20 to 30 minute retail economy um, uh, you know, can, can afford you on a, uh, and something that's aligned with what you'd want to do on a road trip is where we, where we're going to place these things. It's gotta be like an Apple store. That's uh, must be the number one <laughs> consumer destination, right? For a 30 minute stop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, you know, I think, uh, I think we already have too many gadgets, but that would be a good one. <laughs> Pasquale, help me understand. Cause I, I've driven exactly one EV in my life and it was a good one Ford F-150. Um, it was awesome, but how should I think about the rollout of a network of charging system stations around this country? Just help me put it into perspective. Like, you know, I think about gas stations, one on every corner, that kind of thing. How do I? Th- how should I think about the charging system infrastructure? Yeah, so charging is a lot. Driving an EV is a lot different than driving a gas car. And if you pattern match on gas stations, I, I think you you get head faked a bit. Um, the 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 charging experience for for most of your fuel, most of your electricity that's going to take you around where you need to go is going to come in at home, at work, around town. You're going to top it up kind of like your piece of consumer electronics. It's fitting that it was announced at CES because cars are, are behaving from a fueling perspective yep. more like your cell phone than they are the the, the gasoline cars of old. Now, uh, for gas stations, the ones that are placed around uh, you know, the everyday use for your everyday fuel, those really don't have that much reason to exist in the long term in the EV world. It's the ones that are uh, road trip positioned, you know, in positions between metro areas that you're typically going to drive on a road trip when you're going beyond your battery range. Those are the ones that are likely to develop into EV charging sites with the proviso oh, that. There's enough parking. There has to be enough parking. It takes four to six times the number of parking spaces because you're there longer than you would be at a gas station. So you need the real estate. So it's really a combination of the gas station locations that or the fueling locations that are a road trip position and enough parking. All right. So bottom line, you want to build or Mercedes wants to build 10,000 ultra fast chargers. How many is that? Um, equate to in the US and when are you when are we going to see like enough that Paul feels comfortable, you know, buying an EQV or whatever they're called. <laughs> well, I mean, you can first of all, you can uh we've already got a partnership with Mercedes-Benz where we're powering the uh in-dash navigation and the Mercedes Me charging experience. So you already have access globally through Mercedes-Benz to about a million charging stations around the world. Um, and, and, and so there's, there's a lot of charging that's already out there. 
this overlay network is is essentially a highly curated Mercedes-Benz kind of certified experience. And, uh, you know, there's 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 going to be at least 2,400 stations. Uh, that means ports, parking spaces at uh, at least 400 plus sites across the United States to enable this right for long haul driving. And that's at least we're going to try to leverage uh, other funding from uh, some of the federal uh, and state programs that you see that have already launched. And uh, we're trying to get businesses, frankly, to also subsidize this as well and, and potentially contribute some funding to uh, stretch the sites even further so we can potentially even go beyond 400 sites. Pasquale, give us a, a sense of where we are with the evolution of charging, batteries. Are we are we where we're going to be for a while, or is there a continuous evolution uh, in, improvement here? Well, the chargers themselves are uh, capable of delivering more than today's batteries can take. So if you've driven an electric vehicle, what you'll notice is that they start out charging um, at, a, at a fairly high rate if the charger can provide the energy. And then the charge rate uh, drops over as the battery gets um, <clears throat> more full, the charge rate begins to drop. And you're going to see that uh, behavior um, extend. So you're going to see uh, batteries as, as battery technology matures and as battery management matures, you're going to see batteries be able to take that higher ch charge rate for longer periods of time. And that'll start to really shorten the charge cycle. We think that, you know, technology, uh, 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 you know, that's available today that'll start showing up in, in vehicles will get you from a 10% right. battery level to an 80% battery level in about 18 minutes. Oh, okay. That's interesting. All right, Pasquale, yeah. great stuff. Uh, a great announcement with uh, Mercedes-Benz there. Pasquale Romano, CEO and president of ChargePoint. CHPT is a ticker to put into your Bloomberg professional terminal. Uh, you know, it's just going to be, a, I guess, Matt, a slow build of building out this network of charging stations. and uh, But it's something that I think, you know, it has to happen, will happen. The latest on what's going on in the war in Ukraine. I guess some of the latest news is that Putin calls a surprise 36-hour Ukraine ceasefire. But no one buys that. Nobody buys that. And, you know, but that's supposedly today and tomorrow, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But let's get the latest on what's going on over there and how this may play out. Mick Mulroy, co-founder of the Lobo Institute, uh, but that's just the beginning. Senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, Marine officer, CIA, all this kind of craziness. Uh, but he joins us here. Hey, Mick, what do you make of this uh, this Putin call for a, a ceasefire? Again, as Matt was suggesting, not many people are buying it. Yeah, so great to be with you guys. I am one of those people that doesn't buy it. It's essentially, I think, what they were trying to do was to have a ceasefire of which the Ukrainians would would agree to, but they didn't, uh, so that they could then resupply their troops in the front line, which they're having a very difficult time doing. So uh, that was essentially, in my opinion, why they were doing it. It, it was never agreed to, so uh, it essentially wasn't a ceasefire, and Russia has been engaging uh, on the battlefield just like Ukrainians, so it is essentially uh, a, a no-go. Does anybody buy a ceasefires? I mean, since the Tet Offensive, is it uh, just something that no one really does anymore? So it, it's getting increasingly difficult, uh, partly because nobody trusts the Russians. I mean, they violate, they make an agreement and one day and violate it the next. Uh, it's not just in Ukraine. You see that in other areas of the world. 
Uh, if you, you might remember all the issues when it came to get grain out of the port of Odessa, uh, and they just continuously made an agreement and then broke it. So it's that does not bode well for how this could end. If there's any kind of peace agreement, I think the Ukrainians will be very skeptical uh, that any of their efforts would actually uh, amount to anything. What, what are the likely scenarios for how this ends, Mick? What do you think um, the options are? So from the Ukrainian perspective, um, they have to essentially keep winning. And what I mean is the Russians only stand might, uh, and let's just be specific to President Putin. He only understands might. So they have to hit the spring after hopefully getting a lot of the equipment that will get over there and they'll be trained on hard and just start pushing the Russians out of the territory that they occupied. They've already taken about 50 percent of the territory since uh, February since the Russians took they took 50% back. So if the Russians realize that just they're just going to lose, uh, that is potentially how they could come to uh, the negotiation table. It's going to be through force, quite frankly. You know, Mick, we we heard recently from Admiral James Stavridis that you know the Ukrainians have proven that they can in fact win and be successful on the ground, but now somehow they have to win the air. Um, how do you think they do that? So one way is to get this integrated air missile defense system. Uh, and what I mean by that, integrated, it's, you know, it could be a drone that's shot at you, a cruise missile, a hypersonic missile. They have to have all the systems that can identify the threat and, and engage it in the best possible manner. So Patriot's going to be a big part of that. That's really it's, it's one of the best systems on Earth. It takes a little while to train on it, but once they get that, they get multiple batteries, it'll help them contest the airspace. Uh, the other thing they got to do is these Shahid drones that are coming from Iran. They're about $20,000, but right now the only thing they have to shoot it down is around $500,000. So even if they're successfully shooting these things down, eventually they just keep launching Shahid and, you're, and, and you deplete your resources. So that integration of air defense, I think, is going to be key. So, so um, in that case, um, it seems like this is just going to drag on and on because – you know, we've seen conflicts like this. The U.S. was involved in one ourselves in the 60s and 70s, right? That, you know, where the, the big power doesn't get the message until it's been a decade. Is that what the, what we're looking at here, possibly? Unfortunately, it is possible. Like, at least in our case, we were democracy. So the people will have a say. Um, they're not. They're an autocracy. And they and it's really up to one man unless they depose him, unless they kick him out, which is. I mean, I, I don't want to hope for that. I mean, uh, but, you know, that would be the best case scenario, in my opinion. But there, there's, I mean, he spends a lot of time ensuring that doesn't happen. So because of the that situation, this could last for decades, and it's going to be very difficult uh, to keep all the allies together. But it's yeah. the right thing to do, not only, to, like, morally, but for NATO, for the United States, national security interests to support Ukraine to the end. Exactly what I was just thinking, Mick. I mean, as we watch this new Congress struggle to even uh, pick a speaker, what's yeah. the possibility that they wimp out in terms of support for Ukraine pretty quickly? So I, I, you know, I'm not on the political side of this, but I think from what I've seen that they, they will continue to have support. There's a small handful that whatever reason uh, would like to see that cut. But what I would tell them is we spent about the equivalent, about 5% of our national security budget on Ukraine, and they've depleted 
or destroyed 50% of Russian combat power. So even if you're looking at it from the U.S. national security interest alone, that's a pretty good ratio. It's a really good ratio, right? So um, it's, it isn't charity, just like President Zelensky said when he came to visit us. It isn't charity. We are actually, they are taking on our second most significant adversary, and they're winning. Mick. Second most significant adversary. Yep. After the Chinese. I guess yeah. so. Mick, talk to us about, you know, as we think about the spring fighting season, there's an announcement that Germany and the U.S. are sending, you know, Bradley vehicles and the comparable German vehicle um, and that, how that will have a significant impact. Is there a scenario where when spring rolls around that this Ukrainian uh, military will be able to have pushed for the remaining 50% of territory that they lost? Can they have that type of rapid success? I think it's possible. And certainly they've already shown that they're capable soldiers and officers in, in, in maneuver warfare, quite frankly, the most modern version of warfare. We're getting them the things that they, like, for example, you just brought up the Bradley fighting vehicle. It is not as effective as a, a tank, uh, but it can kill tanks, and it's faster and has longer range. And it will be a significant factor when it comes to their ability to move troops around the battlefield, to envelop the Russian forces, and to not get basically caught in a corner by the Russian forces. You've got our, us sending them, we got the French sending them, and the Germans. Yep. And I think if once that's done and they show how effectively they can use them, the next step would be to give them main battle tanks, like the M1. How about... Um, I don't, I don't, how about the, the any aircraft, Mick? Is there a scenario where NATO or the U.S. provides aircraft, do you think? I think there is a scenario the longer this, uh, this um, conflict plays out. And the, in the U.S. and NATO are going to want to see this come to an end. And so it's going to be that determination of whether an advanced fighter aircraft, um, obviously, I think we'll put caveats that can't be used to strike inside Russia, which is a handicap in the Ukrainians, pretty significant, but we don't want to see this uh, turn into a broader war. That that would push, I think, the decision makers in the United States to, to look at uh, fighter-bomber aircraft, um, I think. But I think it's going to be in stages, like fighting vehicles, main battle tanks, and then potentially more significant advanced uh, you know, fighter aircraft. In terms of uh, uh, Jack Ryan... I was wondering what you what you thought, Mick. I mean, we've got all these great um, new pieces out. Obviously, Tom Clancy is as uh, older, but you've got Jack Carr right now with the Terminal List. I've read all of those books; they're pretty awesome. Although he's incredibly political, and it kind of is a turnoff. Um, you've got uh, Admiral Stravides with twenty thirty four, which I thought was amazing, and hopefully um, not too prescient. What do you think about this stuff, uh, this fiction? Does any of it appeal to you as someone who's been in the biz himself? So I have to admit, I don't, I don't watch the Jack Ryan stuff, but I, the, the 2034 uh, was the admiral and a friend of mine, Elliot Ackerman, um, who was uh, a former Marine uh, Silver Star recipient. So I would definitely give credits for both of those guys on, on that work, and I, I'm a fan of that. And I'm a real big fan of looking ahead because – yeah, oftentimes we just focus on the, the current uh, conflict, and that's important. We have to have a lot of people doing that, but we always have to have people looking to the future because it, we don't want it to be a surprise because that is one of right. the elements of, of warfare that you don't want to get wrong. And I think so. Out of those, I would definitely, uh, I would definitely 
point with that. All right, good stuff. Hey, Mick, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate taking your time. You give us some good insight there on what's happening on the ground there in Ukraine. Mick Mulroy, he is the co-founder of the Lobo Institute, former U.S. Marine, CIA. He's, he's done it all and seen it all, so we appreciate getting his perspective. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's switch gears. Let's pivot hard to WWE World Wrestling Entertainment. Looks like Mr. McVan, I'm sorry, McMahon is coming back, the founder. Jerry Smith, he covers all this media stuff, this sports stuff for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone here. Jerry, what's going on at WWE? Yeah, it's been a big shakeup. Um, you know, this morning, um, Vince McMahon, uh, WWE put out a statement saying that Vince would be returning to the board and as well as two former WWE executives. And Vince would be removing three other board members uh, from the board. So this is a, a big shakeup. Uh, Vince, to, to back up a little, Vince um, retired from WWE last year um, amid allegations of infidelity and um, payments that uh, he had made that um you know the company has been investigating um so now he is uh isn't that par for the course in wwe (laughs) well so this is um a big moment for the company though uh because vince is is, has come back and he can do this because he is the controlling shareholder of the company so uh, essentially what he says goes and he wants to come back uh, because this is a big moment where uh, WWE is trying to renew its media deals. Uh, its matches are broadcast um, on USA, which is uh, part of Comcast NBC Universal, uh, as well as on Friday nights on Fox. And, um, you know, Vince, uh, he wants to be back. He wants to be part of those negotiations. And he also said in a statement yesterday, he thinks that these discussions about a media rights deal could also coincide with a potential sale of the company. Um, you know, and he pointed out that the demand for live events is never been greater in the TV business right now. And a lot of media companies see value in uh, owning the content that they're putting on their stations. So he sees this as an opportunity to potentially negotiate a sale of the company um, perhaps with NBC Universal or Fox or or maybe some other um, company that is interested. So, Jerry, on that front, I mean, that's kind of what got my attention as a former banker. I started going through uh, the digital equivalent of the Rolodex, seeing who would be a potential buyer here. And, and as you suggested, there's 
can't. I think it's a pretty long list here because this is some pretty compelling content that's shown over a long period of time that, you know, incredibly loyal fan base, strong support from the sponsors. It seems like it would be, you know, really something that a lot of people would kick the tires on. Yeah, I mean, Vince has built up uh, an entertainment empire that is, is really quite impressive over the decades. Um, you know, Endeavor could be another company uh, that, that might be interested mm, in WWE. They um, they own UFC. Um, you know, NBC actually, uh, they bought the WWE streaming service and put it on uh, the NBC streaming service, Peacock, a few years ago. Uh, so there's already a, a deep relationship between those two companies. Any sense of when of timing here? Like, how quickly could this whole process move here? Because it seems like Vince McMahon is someone is something. If he wants to get something done, he can get it done. He controls the company. If he wants to sell the company, it seems like it could happen sooner rather than later. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, things are are already moving fast. I mean, this the report. Uh, you know, they put out a, a statement yesterday uh, where Vince. Uh, said that he w- he would like to come back to the board and and um, you know add a few board members uh, that he's close with and then today a day later he he's on the board and those board members yep. <laughs> that he wanted are are there so yeah he really um, WWE is, is fairly uh, and unique in the uh, media landscape where one man really controls calls all the shots and um, you know so. Uh, it, it's hard to say exactly what the timing will be. Um, he he wants to coincide uh, the, these media rights discussions with NBC and Fox about a potential sale. Um, but yeah, Vince uh, is the he's he calls the shots at WWE, and, and how it, quickly he wants things to move along is really up to him. Is it still a big draw? I mean, it was when I was a kid for some people. Um, has it has it continued to be a strong uh, a property yeah yeah i mean the ratings are are are, are still very strong and, and i mean this is um you know just a step back i mean the whole television landscape now is really um you know people are cutting the cord they're getting a lot of their dramas and their comedies on streaming services like netflix but uh you know the cable bundle is really about live sports yep. and WWE is, is an attractive property for media companies uh, for that very reason. All right, Jerry, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Jerry Smith, he's a media reporter for Bloomberg News looking at Worldwide Wrestling. A WWE up 22% today, 52-week high. Stock's up 80% over the trailing 12 months. How about that? We had the eco data today. Jobs numbers came out. I thought they were really good. Matt's a little bit not so positive. well no they were good i mean we added uh what two hundred and twenty-three thousand jobs in the month and record low uh, unemployment, unemployment at a record low that's good and wages from uh from a social perspective yes right i'm just saying from a market's perspective from a fed perspective the market's if, if they want to fight inflation I think they have to get unemployment close to the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and three and a half percent can't be there. But wages, wage growth is slow. Right, let's just go to some professionals. Who cares what we think? Ben sure, Emmons, head of fixed income for <laughs> New Edge Wealth, he joins us the uh, the show in studio today. And Jeffrey Cleveland, chief U.S. economist at Payton and Regal, joining us via a Zoom. Jeff, let's start with you. How did how did you take this uh, jobs number report? Well, I think Matt is correct in that the whole goal 
that the Fed is operating on. They're engineering, they're attempting to engineer a rise in the unemployment rate to get nominal wage growth to slow, and then that's supposed to dampen inflation pressure. That's the whole point of all of these rate hikes. That, that's it. And then, boom, you, you open the uh, employment situation report at 530 here on the West Coast, Yep. and the unemployment rate fell. So it's, it's not working in that sense, right? However, I do think it, it is interesting to consider that it's possible the Fed is wrong about that inflation story, uh, that inflation was high for all sorts of, let's, we can't use the uh, transitory, transitory. <laughs> but, you know, pandemic specific or 2022 specific reasons. And then inflation does fade. And that's your soft landing scenario. That, that I think, cannot be ruled out. We Based even had, I mean, report. Claudia Sam has been writing for a while about how she thinks the Phillips curve is BS in at least some sense. And what she doesn't want is for the Fed to um, fight inflation through, you know, destroying American lives. And <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Raghuram Rajan was on Bloomberg television yesterday, and he has come out and said he of the RBI and um uh, where, where he was chief economist at yeah. the RBI. Uh, no, and he, he ran the RBI and he was chief economist at like the IMF or something. I can't remember the World Bank, something okay. big. Anyway, he's at the Booth School in Chicago now. And he said, you know, the Fed has to be ready for uh, inflation to come down quickly to, you know, low inflation uh, territory or even disinflation. Um, ben Emmons, what do you think about the situation the Fed finds itself in now? Do they have to raise unemployment to get inflation down, or is it coming down naturally? It is coming down naturally through the good side of the economy. And I guess the, the, the drop in energy prices that is consistent now is really helping that cause. And that obviously is on one hand supportive for real income. On the other hand, it is a, a factor in the economy that leads then to lower inflation expectations, and therefore the Fed gets quicker to that goal of 2% inflation over time. But if you read the minutes, they're having a heated debate, though, I think, or it, it felt to me like a heated debate about how far to go with, with tightening or over-tightening. And if you listen to Ballard yesterday, although his projection is coming down a little bit, it's still really high, and he seems to be really driving the debate there. So it seems that they with this Goldilocks, quote-unquote Goldilocks jobs report, vindicates their view like, yes, moderating wages, maybe somewhat slowing in inflation, but strong jobs report should allow us to raise rates here at least to a restrictive level, and then we're sure that inflation comes back to 2%. So, Jeff, how do you think the, the Federal Reserve behaves over the next couple of meetings? What are you looking for, again, and you know, maybe this uh, jobs data impacts that outlook? Well, I think it's difficult. You know, I always tell clients you have to take off your your investor hat and you have to put on the Fed hat and you have to see the world the way they see the world. And I think, as Ben pointed out, there is this very strong line throughout the Fed minutes that they, that by and large, the committee thinks that if the unemployment rate stays low, the labor market remains tight, that will feed through into nominal wage growth and that will feed through into the non-housing services component of core inflation. So goods prices may fall, Rents may decelerate, but it's that non-housing component which will still be elevated because of the labor market. Story. So they definitely view inflation through the labor market lens. So I think you have to keep that in mind as an investor because I think, as we see this morning, 3.5% unemployment rate, you're looking at the world through that labor market lens, right or wrong, you're going to think we need to remain restrictive. 
Now, maybe that they don't need to keep hiking. Maybe they pause in the second quarter, sort of our expectation. But do you cut with the unemployment rate at three and a half percent? No uh, way. I don't think so. No, no, no I don't way. think so at all. Yeah. So <laughs> why the, on, on earth wouldn't you take advantage of a three and a half percent unemployment, even if you're not fighting inflation? Um, just to build up dry powder, and I know a lot of people, Ben, are against that argument, but if it were me, I would say, let me save up some basis points here. If I get unemployment at 3.5%, I'm raising 50 again in February. It plays exactly to the Fed's hands. Like this is actually an ideal scenario for them to say, look, our rate hikes are not derailing the, the labor market in any way. It's not in any recession. There's not any recession happening as we speak. There's slowdown happening, but that's you know, natural as you get from a major boom of this pandemic that we had. So you can continue to move this rate higher, only they've decided on a slower pace is maybe appropriate because if you do continue with 75 base points at a time on, you know, let's say another three, four meetings that way, you probably get more volatility. But they gotta go 50 at the next meeting, right, Ben? Because if they don't, if they only go 25 and then inflation comes roaring back, then Jerome Powell is Arthur Burns and all bets are off. So it's a great question, Matt, that that is the toss-up here still of 25 or 50 based on this report. As you see the market rallying today, it says no, we'll be at 25, but there's actually a 50 basis point rate hike, what this report is saying. Jeffrey, what's the uh, Payton and Regal kind of recession call for 2023? Well, we look at the yield curve, we look at rate hikes, we look at housing. Housing historically is the business cycle. So when housing rolls over, you generally have a, a recession that follows. The, and the housing is in a recession, it, right, Jeff? Yeah, exactly. So but it can happen with the lag. I mean, you you probably remember very well, housing to me peaked in summer of 05 or arguably early 06. The arrest, recession didn't officially begin until December of 07. So there can be lag. So. We've been saying, hey, it might be that the economy uh, skates by without a recession in 23. Maybe that's a 2024 story. The jobs report today certainly, I think, uh, bolsters that argument. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, though, is the bond market seems to conclude this morning that uh, maybe there's only going to be a 25 basis point hike or maybe the Fed is close to being done. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We still have CPI uh, coming up next uh, Thursday, I believe. And then the Fed prefers the employment cost index over average hourly earnings. So ECI, ECI is coming out on uh, January 31st, so right before the next Fed meeting. So I think there's still, uh, th this narrative could still shift back, you know, if, if we get a, a stronger than expected core CPI, for example. Which is coming out, wait, isn't CPI coming out next week? Is that yes, the 12th? Yeah, I think that's next week. On the 12th, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's right. I, I do agree with Jeff there. Like, Look at the European data today, right? It's, so we peaked there, we're falling off with, with headline inflation. Because, yeah, gas prices have plummeted, but the core rate is pretty sticky there. It's not really moving a 5 .2%, lot. 5.2%. Right, uh, so yeah. we have we have somewhat similar here too. And to Jeff's point, like this core PCEX housing that's been highlighted by Powell and I put in the minutes too, that's really the number to watch. It has come off a little bit in the last re reading, but it's way over 4%. So is that the 4.6% number? Yeah, it's at four, yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's just too far above target. It's not like the official target, but it's like the number that, as Jeff says, it's, it's a wage-linked number. And that's what they're PCE is traditionally their go-to number. Yeah. They're preferred. Yeah. And I never know if they like, uh, they, they've had, they have specified in a number of papers that PCE is their preferred measure, but yeah. they haven't specified if it's headline or core or core X housing. Um, I guess they don't want to let us in. No, that was the, yeah, that's the Fed watching game here that keeps us all, uh, you know, engaged. 
And, uh, but you know, to to that is that I actually think that if you if you take headline as the broadest measure of inflation, and you continue to see negative month-to-month -month prints from here on, yep. then that's definitely an indication inflation coming down faster. So I, I do think you need to watch that. And if you also watch jobless claims every week, I was right. thought of these two measures as your your real-time gauge on where we are with the economy in terms of inflation right. pressure. Hey, Jeff, you're based in L.A., 30 seconds. How's the economy there? How's the outlook there? What do you hear when you day-to-day? Well, we just endured, you know, several days of rain, which never, which rarely happens here. <laughs> We've got four yeah. inches of rain in my neighborhood here. So that has been, that has certainly been the talk of the town. I think uh, second to that, I mean, the, 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 the thing everyone talks about is still the labor shortage that yep. uh, companies, don't, you know, there's, they have demand for labor. They can't find enough people who are willing or able or uh, that want to fill those positions. So that's that's pretty dominant. Um, weakness in the housing market, though, we are yep. seeing um, pretty pretty substantial slowdown in activity sales and, and prices have decelerated. So yep. it'll probably be the, the top things that are being discussed here on the West Coast uh, Good stuff. at the moment. All right, Jeff, great stuff. Jeff Cleveland, Chief U.S. Economist at Payton and Regal. And Ben Emmons, Head of Fixed Income at New Edge Wealth, joining us here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.